0: So, uh, look. Last week uh, we looked at sex, and today is uh, is going to be um, a, a bit of a continuation on from that. Uh, I'm, it's going to be a little bit more explicit than it was last week. Uh, some of you are going really in church? Yes. Um, we're just going to talk about uh, the corruption of it. I guess last week I talked about normal sex, which is an interesting thought. Like, what even is normal sex? And we looked at that. Last week we looked at the fact that sex is a good thing, that sexual love flourishes as a loving intimacy between one husband and one wife, that it's created by God for marriage between a man and a woman, it's for procreation, it's for having kids, it's for pleasure, it's for joy, it's for communion, it's for celebration, it's where a husband and wife give themselves to each other in a desire to deeply know and be joined with one another in every area of their lives. We also looked at how it images God. And that married couple should have sex as regularly as they want to have sex. So now we have a datum point. <laughs> I mean, one of the big kind of ideas last week was that sex is a pointer to the kind of intimacy and communion that God actually wants to have with us personally. It's not an end in itself. And that normal kind of view of what sex is now becomes a datum point for us to look at the corruption of it. Something to measure everything else Against, like a, a ruler that you would use to measure something. Uh, God's view, God's creative intent in sex helps us to know about the corruption of it. So you're really going to need a Bible today. Uh, if you don't have one, there's Bibles up the back because uh, I just want you to see this stuff for yourself. Uh, the first thing we're going to kick into is Ephesians 5 verse 3 to 6. So if you're, uh, if you're new to the Bible, the Bible works like any other book. It has a contents page or pages at the front which tell you the, uh, the page number that the book is on, the big numbers are the chapters and the little numbers are the verses. We're going to go to Ephesians 5, verse 3 to 6. We did uh, 3B last Sunday, but we're going to have a crack at 3 to 6 today. So you might pull a hammy by the end of it, but hopefully not. Ephesians 5, verse 3 to 6. But sexual immorality and all impurity... Or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints you get the idea there of normalcy what's what's normal that's not normal to be to be doing those things if you're someone who's in God's family let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place again you see another note there that's not normal for people who are God's children but instead let there be thanksgiving that's what's normal For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Have a look on the screen here. You can see roughly, the text is a little small, but you can see roughly the flow of the argument in this chapter. Paul kind of starts out and he says, sexual immorality, impurity and covetousness are not normal. Then he says, filthiness, foolish talking and crude joking are not normal. (laughs) And then he says, if sex, sexual immorality, impurity and covetousness are normal, then you're not a child of God. And then he finishes it all up uh, at the end there and he says, if you are a child of God, be careful. Do you see that? So let me run through a couple of things just to tee us up for today. Sexual immorality... The word for immorality there in the Greek is actually porneia, all right? And the word porneia actually means uh, unchastity, harlotry, prostitution, fornication. Basically, the bottom line is any kind of sex that's extramarital is sexual immorality. Especially though adultery and sexual relations with prostitutes, all right? Fornication is sex outside of marriage. I mean it gets a bit freaky right but you go back to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus talks about adultery not just being something that you do physically but something that you do in your heart as well so that kind of ratchets it up a whole bunch of notches and then you get to the bit there where Paul's talking about impurity you know there's a sense here of unrestrained sexual behavior but then he broadens it and he goes listen it's not just about sex it's like any kind of impurity doesn't fit someone who belongs to Jesus you know, there's a sense here uh, with sexual immorality and impurity that the person's under the control of natural lusts. And then you get down to the third one there from Paul in verse 3 there. Sorry, verse, uh, yeah, verse 3 there where he talks about covetousness. He talks about greed. He moves from the outward act of sex to the inward greed, the insatiable desire to have someone else's body for your own gratification. I mean, think about covetousness for a minute. I mean, I'll get to this a little bit later on. How many times have you heard people in the church repent of the sin of coveting? Now, hardly ever. I have hardly ever heard anyone repent of the sin of covetousness. Now, you would think in the West where the marketing machine is very well refined and the whole thing thrives on consumerism and materialism, you would think that there'd be more people in the Western church, in my experience, repenting of the sin of covetousness. All right, And it doesn't take much imagination to actually make the connection between covetousness and sexual immorality. I mean, sex sells, right? Doesn't it? And so you, you look at advertising, you look at marketing, and you're getting this weird, monstrous brew of sexual immorality, greed and covetousness in there. You know, and at, at some level, I'll tell you something, I'll, I'll tell you this... <laughs> When you covet something, it says something about what you think about God's level of generosity, doesn't it? Have you thought about that before? You're actually saying something about His generosity when you covet something, that it's not good enough, that you want something else. You know, you can see here a link between the first and the last commandment. What's the first one? Don't have any other gods. See, covetousness is going after something and leaving God behind, leaving Him in your dust. Now Paul here in verse uh, 3 is saying don't just shun the behaviours but also even avoid thinking and talking about them. And what's so important about thinking and talking about these kind of things? Well thinking and talking about these things normalises them. And this stuff is way more normal for you than what you think. And it is for me too. I said it last week, you don't ask a fish what the wetness of water is like because they don't know anything else. And in to a large degree you shouldn't ask a westerner how bad sexual immorality is in their culture how bad impurity is because they don't know there's a whole bunch of stuff that we all just swallow we just absorb from our culture without even thinking about it and so Paul here is kind of going don't even think about them or talk about them Don't read news.com.au articles about what someone's doing in their sex life. Do you you get my point? We won't have a show of hands. Who has? Okay? But that stuff comes out all the time. I don't know how many times I've changed my news site that I go to because I used to go to 9MSN, right? And then there was all these sexual stories and going, right, I'm done. And I checked out news.com.au for a bit and they were pretty clean and then it seemed like they worked out that if you put lots of stories about sex on there, more people read it. So I stopped doing them, I'm on the ABC now. So, some of you are going, what's wrong with that? Well, there's nothing wrong with it, it probably just tells you something about me. Here's the thing, Paul's saying you need to do what's fitting. Go to the second uh, section there that Paul talks about in verse 4. He talks about filthiness, obscenity, shameful things, indecent behaviour, ugliness, wickedness, foolish talk. He talks about stupid chatter. (laughs) I mean when you were young did you ever get involved in a conversation where it was just a dumb conversation where people just wanted to make dumb jokes and they said stuff that you should never ever say does anyone know what i'm talking about have you done that as an adult have you been in a context as an adult where people are just saying they're just saying dumb crap and you're just going this is just a dumb conversation And it just kind of snowballs and snowballs. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then people are saying things that they shouldn't be saying. And they're denigrating things that are precious. And all of a sudden we're all in a place that no one really wanted to be in. I think that's what Paul's talking about here. Crude joking. (laughs) Coarse jokes. Double entendre. Wittiness. Inhumane. Or degrading, joking and jesting. Suggestive overtones. A dirty mind expressing itself in vulgar conversation. Now, some of you are going, this is a bit negative. Yeah, because the positive bit was last week. <laughs> Alright? And you know, there's way too much material for me today. Do you know why? Because we've got a whole machine that is just pumping this stuff out every single day. David and a biblical counsellor, says this. He says, Many varieties of flirtation, self-display, foreplay and entertainment don't necessarily go all the way to orgasm, dressing to attract and tease the lust of others, looking voyeuristically, suggestive remarks, crude humour, erotic kissing, petting and the like. All these actions suggest an intention toward immoral sexual intercourse whether the in, uh, intention is consummated or not. Such behaviours, whether occurring in daily life or portrayed on film or page, cross the line of love. Listen to this. Whether or not our cultural context views such things as acceptable or even as entertaining, they are evils. Listen. Love considers the true welfare of others in the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There's a big difference there, right? I mean, you, can, you get to the end of that quote and you just go, that's a big difference. And you can hear a difference between that and what Paul's talking about in... Ephesians 5 but I want to just back up for a minute because we've got some strange categories that Paul mentions here all right he says sexual immorality impurity and covetousness now I don't know whether as you read that you thought that was weird all right but the first time I read it I thought that's just really weird it's kind of like saying there's lots of bad things in the world like genocide abuse and leaving the toilet seat down you with me? It's like you just kind of get to it and you go, wow, that's a red herring. What's the covetousness piece? Why is that in there? Where did that come from? What's the connection? Well, I want to say this to you this morning. Loving God leads to loving other people all the time. It always does. See, the only way that you can truly and deeply love other people is by loving God the most. And I'm not saying that you can't love other people if you don't love God I'm just saying that you do it best and you do it deepest when you love God so i would ask you the question today do you want to love others deeply do you or if you answer yes to that then you need to love God deeply do you know why because when you don't love God you turn your worship To something else by definition an idol and it makes you less than human and you treat others in a way that's less than human you see what actually happens with humanity (laughs) when we turn away from God is we turn away from the one for whom we were made everything operates properly and rightly when we're in relation to him but as soon as we turn around to something else all of a sudden humans start to malfunction and they become less than human and you end up in a place where needs get out of control. It becomes all about you and your needs and your desires and you get more and more out of control and you become this great big vacuum cleaner <laughs> with a hose on it that's big enough to suck other people into it. You know, And it's just like all the time just sucking people and things into it because you're not actually connected to God. Are you with me? That's what it is. It just sets up this vacuum in your life. You see, you might have heard this saying before. Humans were meant to love people and use things. But when you turn to idolatry, you love things and you use people. And you become less than human. You know, when you turn away from God and you worship something else, you get dehumanized because you weren't meant to operate like that. A dishwasher is not a good lawnmower. You can try and make it mow the lawn but it's not going to operate very well as a dishwasher or as a mower if you're trying to make it mow. Is everyone with me? It just, it's not going to work, right? And, and that's the thing, like, we turn away from the one whom we're meant to be plugged into and we become dehumanized and let me just say this, we become master manipulators, don't we? And other people turn from real people created in God's image to objects for me to manipulate so that I get what I want or that I get what I think I need. So we ask almost these subliminal questions. How do I get them to respond the way that I want them to? How do I get them to laugh at my jokes? That's one I ask a lot. (laughs) My kids tell me my jokes are terrible. Thank you for laughing. You're laughing at me, right? (laughs) How do I get them to act the way I want? How do I get them to accept me? How do I need to act in this conflict situation so that I can get the outcome that I want? Mm. You see, you can just go on and on and on and ask the questions about the way that we actually manipulate other people when we turn away from God because you can't love other people consistently, deeply well without loving God. See, if you do love God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength, you will love your neighbour as yourself. It always works that way because the love of God always produces that. And it's not a big leap to go from that into the way that we do sexual immorality in ways that treat other people like objects to get what we want when it's still about us. Come with me to Jeremiah chapter 2. I want you to see this. Last week we looked at a bunch of sexually explicit texts in the Bible because uh, the Bible does not shy away from this and today we'll uh, just look at a few in uh, Jeremiah 2. <coughs> Start at verse 12, we we'll just read verse 12 and 13. Of Jeremiah 2. be appalled, O heavens, at this! Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils: they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So, if you've cut and carved out a or dug out a cistern that doesn't hold water, what are you going to be? Now, this is not a trick question. You're going to be thirsty, right? You just you're just going to be thirsty, right? And that's the bottom line. When you leave God. Thirst for God, I preached on this uh, quite a while ago. Thirst for God is more of a curse than it is a blessing. It's a sign that there's something wrong. You're meant to be being nourished by God and not be thirsty because you're being nourished regularly by Him. Go down to verse 20 of Jeremiah chapter 2 there with me. God says to Israel, For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve God. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a hall. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I'm not unclean? I've not gone after the baals, after the idols. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done, a restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness, her heat in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it's hopeless for I have loved foreigners and after them I will go. Do you see that? <laughs> a wild donkey on heat... Her lovers don't even need to find her because she's going to find them. Like there's this craving to go after other gods. That's really what God's saying here, to worship other things, to center their lives as a nation on something other than God himself. And then this crazy thirst and almost slavery in that last verse there, it's hopeless for I've loved foreigners and after them I will go. So how well do you think that fits in with our culture? (laughs) Giving ourselves over in worship to other gods. Worshipping the God of sex, pleasure or self. Giving ourselves over to our sexuality. I'm going to go through some uh, categories in our culture of uh, areas where we see sexual immorality. And it's a bit censored (laughs) because I've been to talks before where people are not censored and it kind of has the opposite effect to the effect that I think Paul would have us to have in uh, Ephesians 5. But I do want to be open enough about this. Um, I could show you lots and lots of examples. Now, I've got Facebook and I get those scantily clad females wanting to friend me too. Does anyone else know (laughs) what I'm talking about? It's probably some 55-year-old overweight bald guy. He can do a Google image search somewhere in another country that wants to uh, hack my bank account. I could show you all that stuff but I do just want to give you a bit of a taste and a bit of a flavour and make some comments about the kind of culture that we're in. Because I think we all just swallow it quickly. And I want you to see how closely covetousness and sex go together. They always have and I think they always will. And that's very typical of our culture. It's a wicked brew that we have going on. Let's start with this one. Edward Smith has sex with more than 700 cars and lost his virginity to a VW Beetle. That was the headline in 2014. Now don't even think about that too much, alright? But that's just weird, right? This is news.com.au. This is like one of the lead stories on there, alright? Back in uh, 2013, there was an article uh, in the Courier-Mail. Um, it was about twerking. If you don't know what that is, don't go and look it up. Um, it was about Miley Cyrus, and it was basically generally about um, females in, in music and how they're just selling their bodies, basically. And you'll notice here on the left, an excerpt from it, singers shedding their clothes isn't empowering, it's just a meaning. And we all at the project would say amen. Well done, Karen Brooks. All right, you nail it. We would probably go a little bit further and say it's dehumanising. That's what it is. If you go to the right hand side, this is an excerpt from it. Uh, The word empowerment peppers interviews with these performers and those seeking to understand and justify the overt sexualisation of women in music culture isn't surprising. It's become an excuse, a ready explanation that counters and silences arguments to the contrary. There is power in attracting the gaze and maintaining it, but when that gaze views you as an object alone, And any power it may have conferred is first reduced, then disappears. Talent might be God-given, but that doesn't automatically bring success. Fame, fortune and social value resides in music and beyond in how the female body is displayed. Do you hear what she's saying here? Do you see that bit right in the middle? But when that goes, views you as an object alone, it only views you as an object because everyone out there is worshipping. That's how it works. Because that's how it always works. You worship an idol, you worship something that's not Jesus. You're sending a life on something that's not Jesus and people turn into objects. That's what happens. It comes about you. And then you had this. This is back in uh, 2009. They had an article in the editorial part of the Courier Mail called The Reign of the Sex Ebrity. Tamara Jaber, former pop princess and wife of radio sh- jock and erstwhile television host, Kyle Sanderlands. Do you remember him? Brings a new low to a rising phenomenon in popular culture: the sex-everyday. The sex ebrity is a D-grade celebrity who, to catch and remain in the limelight, sells their sex life, in daring words and/or images, but without possessing any other discernible talent. <laughs> <laughs> Using the platform of the men's magazine, Ralph Jaber has given readers the ins and outs of not only her sex life with Sanderlands but also her fantasies. This is this is the, the the world that we're living in, folks. This is 2009. This is eight years ago. I mean, it would be a tough argument to kind of establish to say that we've improved since 2009, right? Remember this movie, Friends with Benefits, which was all about two people who had come out of emotionally disturbing and difficult relationships who decided just to be friends and have sex on the side without doing a relationship. Like th- This is what's selling. People go to this stuff. People pay money for this stuff. Some of you are probably going, I paid money for this stuff. And let me just stop for a minute and, and just think about movies. What is the deal with the fact that almost every movie has to have someone having sex in it? I mean, in one sense, it makes sense, right? Because it's an act of oneness and deep physical intimacy. The deepest intimacy you can get But what is the deal with people watching someone else having sex? I remember when I was teaching, I said to uh, some students, I said to some male students, I said, if someone left their curtain open down the street and you knew that the husband and wife in there were having sex, would you go and stand on the footpath and watch these people having sex in their room? Like, would that be weird? And they're going, yeah, that'd be really weird. Do you think that would be weird? And you know what they said to me? They said this to me. They said, yeah, but they're getting paid to do it. And that just makes it weirder, doesn't it? Now we're some kind of pimp. (laughs) Do you get what I'm saying? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about how completely weird it is to, to watch a movie and to watch two people having sex? Like that is a weird thing to watch. You'd call someone who did that on the street a pervert, wouldn't you? Don't be a pervert, but we'll all go and pay money and these people will get paid so that they can simulate sex on the big screen and we can watch them do it. I don't know, am I being too hard? Yeah. Is anyone with me on that's weird? That's weird, right? Now, we're not saying that because we're all pure, right? Let like, who is without sin cast the first stone, in a sense. But we get used to it, Right? You only don't think that it's weird because you're used to it. Like, that's weird. <laughs> Anyone remember the Bloodhound Gang in 1999? I, uh, I had this classic kind of one hit wonder, pretty much. And yes, that's from their video clip. And yes, I did watch it today. I mean, it's an amazing video clip uh, in a whole bunch of ways. It's like amazing that people even watched it. Uh, that's, that's what I find amazing. <laughs> Uh, let me read you the uh, chorus for uh, the, um, the song. You and me ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that song? Yeah. Uh, now, you know what's amazing I- in a really, really bad way about this clip, and I don't recommend you go and watch it. I'm just going to tell you about this. It's not terrible, terrible, but the first 30 or 40 seconds of this clip are these dudes in monkey suits eyeing off these chicks in skirts and looking at their legs and the camera keeps panning to their legs and then one of them gets a blow dart with a tranquilizer in it, blows at this blow dart and it hits one of the girls' backsides, hits all of their backsides, like there's a bunch of different darts, they all collapse unconscious and one of them picks one of the girls up and goes off with her. Which we would call date rape. Now, like back in 1999, it's like that's a cool thing to do in a video clip. And you look at that song. Why did I bring that song up? I brought that song up because there are very real repercussions of saying that people are animals Mm -hmm. and that God doesn't exist. It has a very real effect on human dignity. All right? 2009, uh, this uh, section was in a... uh, can I, I'll just make a quick comment before I go there. <laughs> Let's be careful how i say this. Have you noticed how much research tells you what you already know intuitively? Has anyone ever noticed that? It's like it can't be true until someone does some research on it. Which is weird and that goes to a whole thing about, and we're not going to go into it, but that goes to a whole... Discussion about epistemology and how you know whether something's true or not. All right, but our culture's big time gone in the direction, and unless you can test it empirically, it's not actually true. And intuition's not actually doesn't actually count, and even logical reasoning doesn't even count as much at the moment. But listen to this from uh, this uh, M- MTV article. You know, you know what it basically says is: it says if teens listen to music with lots of sex in it, they'll have sex more and sooner like some dude just wasted three years of his life doing a PhD on that. Do you know what I'm saying? And we appreciate knowing that piece of information but he didn't need to do the PhD to know that that was going to happen. This week the American Journal of Preventative Medicine published a study that shows a link between exposure to music with degrading sexual references in the lyrics and the level of sexual activity in a group of 711 ninth graders from urban high schools. According to the BBC, the kids were divided into groups based on how many hours a week they listened to music that described sex as a physical act rather than an act of love. Those who listened to such music regularly at least 17.6 hours a week were twice as likely to have had sex as those who listened to it infrequently under 2.7 hours a week. Thank you, Journal of Preventative Medicine. And then I go to uh, the Billboard Top 100 yesterday and this is the top three songs on the Billboard Top 100. Rockstar, do you say it, Bodak Yellow? Can it, someone educate me, And then Logic. The first two songs have sexually explicit lyrics in them and they're, they're the top two songs on Billboard at the moment. All right, And the third one is a song about suicide prevention. Now... It is just in everything, right? What the heck is a sexy car? What, do you get what I'm saying? Like, what even is it? What's a sexy car? What, I mean, one of the things I used to say at the school here is, like, what, when you say that someone looks hot, what, what do you mean that someone looks hot? And do you know what it meant most of the time? I'd like to have sex with you. Like, you look so sexy, I'd like to have sex with you. Maybe not quite like that. What about, has anyone been watching The Block, the last series of The Block? The Block now has sexy taps. <coughs> Lucky, like, are you serious? Like, sexy? I don't even want to know what a sexy tap is. I mean, there's jokes about sex. Food is orgasmic. Have you heard that on food shows? It's like, really? (laughs) And then, yeah, I mean, we haven't even started talking about all the jokes that get made, sexual jokes that get made about different shapes. Listen to this from uh, Feinberg and Feinberg in in a book, Ethics for a Brave New World. The decade between 45 and 55 saw the traditional consensus on sexuality erode. The sexual revolution began in this period. Monogamy was not universally praised. Penicillin and the pill removed three of the most undesirable consequences of promiscuity extramarital sex, infection, detection, and conception. Enter Buddy Hugh Hefner, the creator of Playboy. Enter Kinsey, the sex researcher in the 40s and the 50s and you have a sexual revolution powder keg. And now, we've got people doing pole dancing fitness classes. We've got people lining up to go to porn conventions. Now, Hugh Hefner died only uh, a number of weeks ago. And the damage has been done by you. I mean, Playboy's not even a, um, it's, it's, it's not even, I mean, they've been saying for a while, it's not even a profitable business anymore because of the amount of porn that's on the internet. But listen to this, this is Hugh Hefner, when he was about 80, talking about his greatest achievement and his greatest regret in his life. Well, in terms of, uh, of achievements, I think,
1: uh, it is my part in in the, the changing social sexual values of our time. I think I take particularly pride in that and I think that uh, Max Lerner, a good friend, a professor and a writer, uh, observed that uh, Kinsey was the researcher and, and Hepner was the pamphleteer. And uh, very early on, although it was not the original intention of the magazine, uh, we began to promote an attitude in terms of single life that obviously became, in the 1960s, the sexual revolution. And for that I'm very proud. Uh, In terms of regrets, that's a dangerous game because uh, I was a kid who dreamed impossible dreams, but nothing that I imagined as a child uh, lived up to what actually happened in my life and I, I uh, there are obviously individual decisions that I made both in a personal life and, and in terms of business where one might have made them differently and but and, uh, better for it but uh, overall everything has worked out so very very well for me uh, I'm a very lucky cat and I really wouldn't change a bunch of anything
0: so he, uh, he started Playboy, um, the pornographic magazine and uh, probably, I, I think that's probably right, what he says there about Kinsey being the researcher and him being the pamphleteer is probably right. Like he, he is probably responsible, the one who's most responsible for changing sexual values through the sexual revolution and where we are today. He's dead now. He died I think about a month ago, a month or so ago. This is a newspaper article on the ABC News website. Let me read it. That I changed attitudes towards sex, sorry, asked by the New York Times in 1992 of what he was proudest. That I changed attitudes towards sex, that nice people can live together now, that I decontaminated the notion of premarital sex. That gives me great satisfaction. Hefner ran Playboy from his elaborate mansions, first in Chicago and then in Los Angeles, and became the flamboyant symbol of the lifestyle he espoused. For decades he was the pipe smoking silk wearing pajama wearing center sorry silk pajama wearing center of a constant party with celebrities and playboy models listen to this by his own account Hefner had sex with more than 1000 women I mean the, the whole time Hefner portrayed himself as this guy that just had the life right That is not a human thing to do, to have sex with a thousand women. Alright? It's just not. That is not the way that God created sex to work. I mean, there's a whole section on the right-hand side over there where uh, this lady makes the, uh, the comments, or makes some comments, about how, uh, how Hefner actually really fueled the sexual revolution and changed people's attitudes towards sex. And I think we, we live in the shadow of that. I mean, I was reading a little bit of Kinsey's research last night and you can hear some of those notes in, uh, in our culture. I mean, we're living in the shadow of that sort of stuff. And I, look, I don't even have to go into pornography. You've heard lots about pornography, but like pornography's weird, isn't it? Like get a girl or a bloke to take their... G- and, and girls do get into Pornography too, not as much as men, but they do get into pornography too. Get someone to get their gear off and we'll take some pictures and then people can pay to look at them. Like that's weird, isn't it? Go back to last week when I was talking about just the mysterious depth of marital sexual intimacy and the intermingling of of, of the married couple together. Like this is crap compared to it, isn't it? Like it's just a cheap knockoff. That's what it is. That's what it is. It's, like, it's like pathetic. Like you ought to look at Hefner, not in a judgmental kind of Christian kind of way, but you look at Hefner and you just go, you ought not be proud about that. That is not a good thing. You are not acting very humanly. And if you're here today and you're doing porn and you're looking at porn and you're reading these, these uh, kind of sex stories in the news sites, you just need to stop doing it because it doesn't fit someone who belongs to Jesus. It's not a human thing to do. And you're actually, you're a self-swindler. You're stealing from yourself. You know, I often talk to uh, premarital couples and do premarital counseling. And it's like, you can go too far if you want to. There's probably not going to be any place where you're going to be under surveillance enough where, where, where you're just going to be stopped from going too far physically with someone before you get married. But do you know who you steal from when you do that? You steal from yourself. You always steal from yourself. You do porn, you steal from yourself. You do news.com.au stories, you'll steal from yourself. You just keep stealing from yourself. And you worship something that gets you into slavery. I mean, this is an epidemic. Pornography is a slavery epidemic. It seems like fun. It's like this is how idols work, right? You start worshipping them and you think you're choosing them and before long they're choosing you and you can't get out. That's how it always works. It always works like that. And this time won't be different. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It's like you go in, and you go, this time's going to be different. I'm going to keep control of this. No, you won't because it doesn't work like that. Whatever you worship is the thing that you serve and you become enslaved to. And worshipping God and loving Jesus and putting Him in the centre of, of your life doesn't enslave you. It kind of does this ironic twist where it, where it releases you and it actually brings you freedom as you serve Him and you centre your life on Him. Don't believe the lie. There was a rally in the city the other day uh, on, the, on the city free from porn. I mean, you want stats on porn? You, there's lots of them out there. Go to cityfree.org.au, which is a Toowoomba website. They've done some Toowoomba surveys about pornography. You can go and check all of that stuff out. You've probably heard a bunch of them before. But At this point, I just want to ask this question. Is sexual immorality a man's problem? No. No, it's not. I just want to go to the next... Here we, here we go. Listen to this is from uh, Dave Powelson. Um, on sexuality and women. Men do graphic pornography, that's an obvious problem. Women do romance. It's the same kind of problem, though the participants keep their clothes on a while longer and there's more of a story to tell before they tumble into bed. Romance novels are female pornography. The sin comes wide through intimacy last first and builds toward erotic lust. The formulaic fantasies offer narrative emotion candy, not visual eye candy. Romance tells a story about someone with a name, someone you fall in love with. It builds slowly. It's more than a moment of instant gratification with anonymous, naked, willing bodies. But like male pornography, there's a progression from softcore, e.g. the Harlequin series, to more open erotic, the Silhouette series, to frankly pornographic writings that target women. The male model Fabio, do you remember him? Fabio. I wonder what he looks like now. <laughs> Made his career posing for Formula book cover art. A big, strong guy, stripped to the waist, tenderly cradles a beautiful woman. He's the knight in shining armour, protective, gentle, understanding, and a handsome hunk. Female versions of sexual romantic sin are shop floor rags as much as male versions. Jesus Christ calls all of us out of fantasy, delusion, and lust whether the fantasy land is filled with naked bodies or with romantic nights. Jesus Christ is about the reality business. Francis of Assisi got things straight. Grant that I would not so much seek to be loved as to love. Jesus teaches us how to be committed, patient, kind, protective, able to make peace, keeping no record of wrongs, merciful, forgiving, generous and all the other hard, wonderful characteristics of grace. See, this sounds, is anyone with me? It's like, yeah, let's have more of that. He teaches us to consider the true interests of others. He teaches us a positive, loving purity that protects the purity of others. Instead of our instinctual ways, narcissism, fascination with our own desires and opinions, self-indulgence, Jesus Christ takes us by the hand to lead us in ways that make the a difference. Am I supposed to say that differently, aren't I? That's a bit ironic. Shine brightly. Don't you get this in Ephesians 5? And in verse 4 there, Paul says, no filthiness, foolish talk or crude joking, but what? What instead? Thanksgiving. Uh, that phrase in the middle of verse 3 to 6 of Ephesians 5 is like a candle in a smothering darkness, is it not? Do you notice it? Do you just notice how it's just kind of standing out there? It's like, Whoa! All of a sudden it's not a vacuum kind of sucking everything in for itself but it's actually extrospective, it's pushing outwards, it's looking for something on the outside. Do you know what Jesus does when he dies on the cross? Is Jesus changes your heart so that sex isn't primary of primary importance anymore. He makes it of secondary importance. This is the problem, Pauluson says, with the way that we deal with sex and sexual immorality is that sex but takes on primary importance instead of secondary importance. See, when you worship something else, all of the other loves in your life get messed up and jumbled around and disordered. When Jesus dies on the cross and you give yourself to him as his child, he gets the top spot and then all your other loves fall into the right place. When he's not in the top spot, all these other loves just get all jumbled all over the place. You see, centering on sex poisons us. Poisons it, I should say. And God saves us by saying sex is not ultimate. And God would be saying that today through the scriptures to our whole culture. Sex is not ultimate. When you make it ultimate and you make it the thing that rules you, you poison yourself and you poison it. You wreck it. Paulson says this, Each of the perversities makes sex too important. It makes the evaluator, the redeemer of sex irrelevant. Sex becomes your identity, your right, your fulfillment, your need. That's nonsense. Each ends up degrading sex as a mere urge that must find an outlet. Man, is that not us? That too is nonsense. Whether exalted or degraded sex ends up disappointing, self-destructive and mutually destructive. What does God want to do to save us? From sexual immorality, he wants to dislodge sex from primary importance. And I want to suggest to you this morning, I want to say it really clear any sexual immorality that you've engaged in, that you've done, is because it's become primar- primarily important in your life. And God's been knocked off his throne. So, how do you stay human? Can you go back to verse 6 with me? Ephesians 5. Verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Do you know what empty words are in our culture? It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. It's just, it's just one movie with the sex scene in it, doesn't really matter. What oh yeah, about this one. Yeah, I can listen to the song, it's a really good song, I'll listen to it and I just won't pay any attention to the words. Even when I'm singing it, I still won't pay any attention to the words, it doesn't really matter. Do you know what Paul's saying here is don't give in to permissiveness, to the permissiveness of the culture that's around you. And don't give in to thinking that it doesn't matter that much. This is... Death by a thousand cuts. Mm. You may slip, but don't be like them. That's what Paul's saying here. Let me just make a couple of quick points and then I'm uh, done and we'll sing. Any sport that you watch needs offence and defence. Okay? Okay. So if you're going to do well to stand against the tide, and it is a tide of sexual immorality in our culture, you're going to need offence and defence. What's defence? Defence is like, if you think about rugby league, defence is like we've just got to stop the other team from scoring. If you don't play defence, you won't win. Alright? So what's my point here? My point here is that you need to come up with a whole bunch of personal legalisms or rules by which you're going to operate. Now we do not advocate corporate legalism, necessarily, at the project, okay? But we very much do advocate, or I very much do advocate, personal legalism. What do I mean? I mean that you're just going to put rules and guidelines in place for yourself for a few reasons. One reason would be because you know your own weaknesses. And you know how you could get caught out. Another reason, and I think this is probably the biggest reason, is because you know the toxicity of the material that's actually out there, okay? and parents if you have got the internet at home and your kids have got access to it and you haven't filtered it and you don't have them in a public place using it you need to do something about that as soon as you get home there is a great the internet is a great thing but it's also a great big sewage pipe that's pumping raw sewage into your house and i'm like this close you see a gap between my fingers? I'm this close to making some kind of pers- corporate legalism. You shouldn't ever let your kids have access to the internet in their bedrooms where they can close a door. Never, ever do that. Never, ever, ever do that. Are you with me? Yeah. And it's not because... Some of you will go, yeah, but I trust my kids. I don't even care about that so much. I just care about the crap that's coming down that pipe... And it's so intense and it's so seductive and it'll hook them so much that you just need to respect that, (laughs) respect the crap that's out there so that they don't just have access to it because it won't take much for them to be hooked on it. What about you? What personal legalism are you going to put in place to protect yourself? What are you going to do? But here's the bottom line, you never win a sport or a game by playing defense, right? You can stop the other team scoring. And if you do that, a really good job, the best that you'll ever get is a draw. And we're not, let's not be people who are just going, we're not looking for a draw when it comes to sexual immorality, all right? We're actually looking for a win. So what's the the offensive side? Well, the offensive side is the worship piece. It's delighting in God. That's what it is. It's like you're just going, I've got to have him. Because he displaces stuff. He moves stuff around. He he squares stuff up that needs to be squared up. He puts stuff in its right perspective. Stir that up. Be in community. Be in groups where you can talk about where you're going on a really, really deep level. The book of Galatians is about a lot of things. But one of the things it's about is about how Christians wanted to bring the law back in and they are saying Christians had to follow the law and so the next statement I'm going to read is actually about the law in particular, the Old Testament law and, and getting in a good place and a right relationship with God through the law but I think it has got application all over the place. Listen to this from Galatians 5 verse 1 and this is where I'd leave you and maybe the music team could come up there. For freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom Christ has set us free, stand stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Jesus came so that you wouldn't be a slave to anything else but to him. And he's the best one to serve. Hands down. And man, there's lots to be thankful for, right? You can be thankful to him for his, uh, his death on the cross, his provision of freedom for us, but be careful. Because all of this stuff that's going on in our culture, the culture that you live in, you've just got to realize you're living in a toxic environment by definition. And you cannot, you you cannot and you will not get through a toxic environment unscathed without the correct kit on. Now sometimes I think it's like, we're like, yeah, I can just stand right next to molten lava. That'll be fine. I'll be okay. Oh, well, yeah, for about a hundredth of a second. We're I mean, in a lot of ways, right? We're... We are swimming in terms of uh, how caustic it is, we're we're swimming in an acid bath, aren't we? We're swimming in an acid bath and you know there's not one person. There's not one person in this room that's uh, unaffected by that there's not one person here who hasn't been dehumanized in some way by the acid bath that we're all swimming around in which is our culture so we're not holier than now are we no one here is holier than now everyone here is very needful of help from each other we're very needful of help from Jesus we need a protective suit So we're going to sing, all right, and uh, it's going to be good to sing, but uh, while we're singing, some of you have probably got a secret garden that's growing some festy things that you're not telling anyone about. And while ever you keep that a secret, it will flourish. things unhelpful evil acidic caustic things flourish in secret so i just want to give you an opportunity today to come clean about something all right to come forward and to uh, and just to be honest with someone i'll be at the front here the elders will be available community group leaders to be available. If there's something that God's been doing in you where you realise, yeah, this has really got to me. I'm getting dehumanised. Maybe you're just going, I'm dead set. I'm enslaved. And I I can't get out. You know, I've been whitewater rafting and you go for a swim when you go whitewater rafting. Has anyone had this? And it's like really hard to get back in the raft. The only way you get back in the raft is because people on the raft grab one side each of your life jacket and just haul you in pretty unceremoniously and maybe that's you today maybe it's like yeah I'm just in this thing and I've tried to get out of it and i tried to get out of it a hundred times two hundred times five thousand times and you just need to go to someone and just go hey I just need a couple of people to grab either side of my shoulders grab my shirt and just haul me in here's the thing I, I, I'm going to finish talking it's going on in this church alright There's absolutely, some of you are doing porn and you're not telling anyone about it. Some of you are reading newspaper articles which you shouldn't be reading that are dehumanising you. It's going on in this church. I don't for a second think that the project's squeaky clean in this stuff. We're just not. So the only difference between saying something and not saying something is being open about something and wanting Jesus to do something with something or keeping it a secret and staying trapped there. And getting dehumanized by it and not living the life that God meant for you to live. I've got to stop. Because my wife's on kids' church, and she doesn't want a really long lesson today. You with me? Can you, uh, do you want to just stand and uh, I'm going to pray. it's really everyone look at me it's really foolish and stupid it's really foolish and stupid to stay in the dark now everyone does it I'm just telling you it's stupid to do it alright so I'm appealing to you today be wise today be wise some of you going did he just call me stupid well I don't know maybe if you got something it's like i love you i mean am i stupid sometimes absolutely i mean my wife will tell you that all right we're all stupid sometimes be wise